this one actually uh, came to mind a while ago. And I'll, I'll admit, it wasn't my own. This was sparked by a message that I heard from a pastor named C.H. Readout. And he's in um, Enfield, Connecticut. And I listen to his podcast when I can. And uh, I happened to be on the treadmill one day and I threw his podcast on. And this message just hit me like lightning. And I said, I have got to teach this and uh, put my own twist on it. So, And uh, the thought is the power of silence. The power of silence. In Isaiah 53, we talk about the, um, the prophecy of the promised Messiah. But in verse number 7, he says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he never said a word. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he stood silent before the ones condemning him. And we see this come into fruition when Jesus finally is born and he grows up and starts his earthly ministry. And the fulfillment is found in uh, these next few verses, Matthew 26 and 62. And this is the Living Bible Translation, Matthew 26 and 62. He says, then the high priest, which is Caiaphas or Caiaphas, stood up and said to Jesus, well, what about it? Did you say that or didn't you? But Jesus remained silent. This is when the crowd went out, the high priest went out to seek for people to bring up a false accusation against Christ. And the Bible tells us that there were many people that were willing to be false witnesses. Yet the Bible says at the last minute, they were kind of afraid to come forward. So at the last minute, they had they had a few that kind of were in, emboldened to step forward and to make those false accusations against Christ. And Caiaphas gave Jesus the opportunity to defend against the false rumors. What do you have to say about it? You hear what these people are saying about you. You hear all the rumors that have gone about you. We want to hear from you. What is your defense? But he says here, but Jesus remained silent. In Matthew 27 and 12 to 14, uh, Caiaphas actually hands him off to Pilate. And in verse 12, it says, But when the chief priests and other Jewish leaders made their many accusations, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear what they are saying? Pilate demanded. But Jesus said nothing, much to the governor's surprise. In Luke 23 and 7, then we have to move him on to Herod. Verse number seven, Luke 23, when they told him, yes, Pilate said to take him to King Herod for Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction. This is when they, the crowd say, well, he's a Galilean. Well, if you're a Galilean, then you got to be handed off to the king of the, of, of Galilee, which was Herod at that time. And Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus, for he had heard a lot about him. And this is what is, is important to me, and had been hoping to see him perform a miracle. So he asked Jesus question after question, but there was no reply. Meanwhile, the chief priests and other religious leaders stood there shouting their accusations. So now you got Caiaphas, you have Pilate. 
you have the Jewish leader, you have the chief priest, now you have Herod, and then now you have everybody shouting accusations, and everybody's asking him for answers, and he's not answering anybody. So I would say that the, the miracle that Herod was hoping to see, I believe, was really found in Jesus' silence. He just didn't realize that there was a miracle happening. In John 19 and 9, the Bible says, He took Jesus back into the palace again and asked him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. You won't talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or to crucify you? So you got to watch out now when people want to get into a power competition. Nobody was talked about Pilate's power. Why would he feel the need to invoke his power on Jesus? So we see in those verses that Isaiah 53 did very much well happen. That lamb that was brought before a shearers before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. And so he stood silent before the ones condemning him. In Hebrews 12, I taught about the scripture once before. It says, keep your eyes on Jesus. Verse number two, our leader and instructor. He was willing to die a shameful death on the cross because of the joy he knew would be his afterwards. And now he sits in the place of honor by the throne of God. If you want to keep from becoming faint hearted and weary, think about his patience as sinful men did such terrible things to him. In this verse, we have to realize that Jesus was the prototype. He was what the Bible calls the first fruit, which means is a, is a Greek word for prototype. So what worked for him will work for us, but we have to be cut from the same manufacturer. The prototype is the first one on the line from the manufacturer. And once all the bugs and kinks are worked out and it's proven that the prototype works, then everything on that line should be really fashioned after the prototype. So in this verse, we see that he actually reaped the reward of his faith because the, it says because of the joy that he knew would be his afterward. The Bible says now he sits in the place of honor. So if we want to sit in the place of honor, we're going to have to do what Jesus did sometimes. All right. So facing false accusations in silence. And it really doesn't have to be an accusatory situation. It could be any situation that you're going through where you feel that you have a right to voice your side of things. I have a right. My personality is at stake. It could be your, your family at stake. Your job situation could be at stake. But it's human nature that wants to set the record straight. I want to get my story out there. I, I, want, I want to tell my side of it. And sometimes we do so preemptively. When we perceive that there's even a threat, we could be accused of something. We want to jump out in front of it. Human nature wants to retaliate when done wrong. I've been done wrong, so I want to... Make sure that you pay, whether it's me getting physical with you, throwing out verbal stabs at you. I want to retaliate. That's, that's my human nature. My human nature wants to exact revenge on the perpetrators. 
I want them to know that what you did to me, you're not going to get away with it. I'm going to make sure you pay. That's human nature. We see it in the news all the time. People that get into it and things go south. Sometimes people end up injured, dead, whatever. Families broken up because someone wanted to exact the revenge. They wanted the person to pay severely. Human nature wants to exercise the right to defend himself. After all, remember, it's rights. You know, we like rights. We like that word. It's, it's my right. And then we like to say, I don't deserve this. So it's my right to set things straight. And I'm not saying that none of that is true. It is very true. Everybody has, has the right to defend themselves. Everybody has the right to, to speak their truth. But what if there are times when we really should be silent? And human nature wants to gloat in his innocence and righteousness. Then we have a little pride, too, about, you know, how, how right we are and how wrong they are. A little pride sets in, you know. You know, me? They would do this to me? They would say this about me? How dare them? And then we go into everything that we do and everything that we say and everything we don't do. So we have to be careful as the ones being accused that, I mean, because Jesus told him after he threw the battle of of power, don't you know I have the power to crucify you or set you free? Jesus told him, you wouldn't have any power except to be given to you. So we become involved in a power struggle. So if we look through the scriptures and we read about silence, there's four instances that silence is used in scripture. Number one, it's used as a reverence to God. The Bible says in Habakkuk 2 and 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth Keep silence before him. See, we like the scriptures that say, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. And we like the noise. But this is that when you, when you see God's awe and his reverence, how holy and high and lifted up he is, the Bible says, let everybody be silent. His presence should be the loudest thing in the room. In the Bible, silence is used as a symbol of death, whether physical or symbolic. Silence is also a symbol of Sheol, hell, the grave. We see it today. When, when someone dies, we, we honor them with a moment of silence because they are now gone into the grave. So it is a way that we can show respect to those that have gone in the grave. So my thing is, if, you, if your situation has just caused whatever area of your life to have to be, die and be buried Silence could be the answer for you to to be able to deal with that. Give it time and just sit in silence. And fourthly, silence in the Bible is also used as an expression of despair. When someone is in a place that they're hopeless, they don't see a way out, they just get quiet. I'm a person that when I get upset, I go quiet. It's not that I don't have anything to say. It's a lot of times I need time to think. I need time to take all of the the bits of information and then recount all the events that just happened. 
and I got to think about it a little bit. So everybody's not like that. Some people are able to just talk about stuff right at, as they happen. They're they're very spontaneous with things, but some some people are like me where you got to internalize it for a little bit and you sit in silence and it's not that you're ignoring and it's not that you're not really uh giving the attention to the matter, but the silence is your way of handling things. So let's talk about vengeance for a minute. Because Jesus could have rained down fire on, on all of those. I mean, he, he is the creator of heaven and earth. The Bible tells us that all things were made by him and for him. Without him is not anything made that was made. He is before all things and by him all things consist or are held together. He, he could have rained down fire. This is the same God in the Old Testament that just made himself flesh. This is the one that opened up the earth and swallowed 3,000 folks in one day for fornication. I'm sorry, 23,000 people in one day for fornication. This is the same God that sent down fire into Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the same person who, who caused it to rain and drown everybody except for eight folk on the earth. This is the same God we're dealing with. So what caused him here, instead of going and, and destroying everybody involved and just going silent? Jesus endured the cross because of what he knew about his future state. This is because as the son of man, he depended on the promises of God regarding him. He knew that the scripture said that you can destroy this temple, but in three days I'm going to raise it up. Why? Because it's written in the Old Testament that my body won't see corruption. When Lazarus died and Jesus stayed in his place on purpose, so that his glory could be revealed. It was four days that he stayed. When he got back, they told him, only if you had come sooner, because it's been four days now, we know that the body is starting to stink. So that fourth day must become, uh, be the day when, when kind of the third and fourth day when the body starts to stink. But the Bible says that his body would not see decay. It would not start to uh the meat fall off of his bones and see corruption. So the Bible knew that that was about a three day period. This is why Jesus says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. It, it follows the suit that the, by the fourth day, you start to stink and rot. But he knew he trusted in the Bible, the word for himself. Remember, he was God, but he was also man. So as man, he had to also have faith in the father. This is where we get in dangerous territory where we become so much oneness that we don't want to see the different roles of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We want to be so anti-Trinitarian that we don't even want to visit the offices and what they entail in the Godhead. But if you ever step back and you look at it, just, just study the Father. And then move from the Father to the Son, and then from the Son to the Holy Spirit. You'll see a lot of things that we miss because we were so overzealous about the oneness that, that we just completely missed it. So as Son of Man, he had to depend on the promises of God regarding him. Our focus must be on our future joy, which is the culmination of all the promises of God that is found in the Bible. If we only can live in the moment and we don't think about our future joy, there's a great chance that we won't be in that place of faith because faith has a futuristic 
aspect to it. It's not just living in the right now. That, that's kind of a, a selfish place to stand when you're only thinking about what's going on right now. Everything that Jesus did, it was calculated. He always had the future in mind when he came. Because when he picked the 12, he knew one of them was a devil, yet he did it anyway. Why? Because he had the future in mind. Romans 12, 17 says, talking about vengeance. Never pay back evil for evil. And some of us need to sit a lot right there. Because we, didn't, we wanted to slap folk. We wanted to cuss people out. I'm not the only one. Everybody's been in a place where somebody did something so bad to them that you wanted to cuss them out. You wanted to beat them with a bat. Whatever your thing was. <laughs> slap them in the next week or whatever. You know, we got all these terms. But the Bible says never pay back evil for evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honest clear through. Don't quarrel with anyone. Be at peace with everyone just as much as possible. And the Bible doesn't let us off the hook because there are situations in life that are impossible to have peace. It's just impossible. There's no way because the Bible already tells us that no, we, we can't walk together unless we first of all agree. So anytime there's a disagreement, there's going to be an argument. There's, there's going to be something that is off kilter in the relationship. So Paul tells us as much as is possible, have peace. Some folk won't allow you to have peace. Because if there is a break in the relationship. And nothing changes. How are we going to have peace? One of the parties has to change. Either the wrong party got to get right or the right party got to just forget the wrong and just deal with it and just say, okay, whatever. We're just going to start over. Which most of the time it's not healthy because you're setting up for a loop. So in that situation, there's not going to be peace. But you, you got to make sure that you have done your part. To where Paul says, as much as is possible, be at peace with everyone. And he says, don't quarrel with anyone. And we know that one's hard. <laughs> Dear friends, never avenge yourselves. Whoa, wait, Paul, wait. You mean to tell me that they can do me wrong and I can't go after them? L leave that to God, he says. Okay. Now, we might need a moment of silence for that. Because this is a very hard lesson to take in. Because they did you wrong. That man did you wrong. That woman did you wrong. That parent abused you. That child went crazy on you. Don't avenge yourselves. Leave it to God. For he has said that he will repay those who deserve it. See, Jesus endured what he had to endure because he knew God is going to repay them for what they did. Knowing that God was going to rain down fire in the end days, in the last times, knowing that the great tribulation was coming, Jesus stood there in silence and let them spit on him, let them pluck his beard. They, he let them strip him naked. 
he let them lash his back while he was giving breath to him. He, he, he let them put the crown of thorns on his head. He allowed that. It wasn't that they had more power than him. This is the God of the universe. He could have called down legions of angels to fight for him. And I'm sure the angels were, were just sitting there looking and saying, Lord, just give us the word. We'll come to your defense. You got people around you that say, just give me the word. I got your back. I'm your ride or die. There are times you guys say, no, just it ain't worth it. We're just going to be silent. Don't take the law into your own hands. Now he gets into things that are against the law and those that break the law and, and abuse you in the process of breaking the law. Paul says to give place to that. Then you let the law handle that. And if the law fails, God's going to get it in the end. Instead, feed your enemy if he is hungry. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And you will be heaping coals of fire on his head. Now we would say, well, Lord, if it's coals of fire you want on the head, just give me the coals of fire. I'll be glad to put the coals of fire on their head myself. After all, I'm the one they did wrong. It should be me. But he says that if you want your enemy to have coals of fire on his head, the only way that you could do it is to show him mercy. What kind of God do we serve that in mercy he's dishing out judgment? When you're merciful to them, God is dishing out judgment on them. It don't make sense to me. It's a, it's a hard concept to grasp. Because I, I want to get physical with them. I, I want to get on the mountaintop and scream to the world what they did to me. And I want to make them pay for it. He says, if you, want, if you want them to suffer, be nice to them. In other words, he will feel ashamed of himself for what he has done to you. But you're sitting back going, they don't feel sorry for what they did because they keep doing it. Now, this is where we've got to believe the scripture that God really is dealing with their conscience. Because to us, it doesn't look like they're sorry. It doesn't look like they feel sorry for anything they did because they keep doing it. But the Bible is telling us here that if you continue to be nice to them, God is working on their conscience. It may not be in your presence. They could be tossing and turning in that. We have no idea. Then he says, don't let evil get the upper hand, but conquer evil by doing good. So I got to read that again. Never pay back evil for evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honest, clear through. Don't quarrel with anyone. Be at peace with everyone just as much as possible. Never avenge yourselves. Leave that to God. For he has said that he will repay those who deserve it. Don't take the law into your own hands. Instead, feed your enemy if he is hungry. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And you will be heaping coals of fire on his head. In other words, he will feel ashamed of himself for what he has done to you. Don't let evil get the upper hand, but conquer evil by doing good. Somebody said about Paul that he wrote some things that were really hard to understand. This is one of those things that, and, and when, I, when I read this and when I first heard this message, 
I, really, all I could do was just cry. I'm on the treadmill, so I could. I had to kind of keep my pace up, but I almost wanted to jump off and just fall to the floor because I wanted people to pay for what they did to me. So we just want to heap the coals on their head. So we must believe that God is appealing to their conscience and that our mercy plays a part in that judgment on their conscience. It is considered evil for us to try to go tit for tat. Some people have personalities that you just can't roll over on. them. They, they just don't lay down easy. Some people are very quick. I mean, you it could be the, the what you would think the slightest offense and they will go ballistic. When we think about Jesus, we think about the prophecy of Jesus. We read Isaiah 53 where he talks about the fact that when he is condemned and he's falsely accused that he's going to do it in silence. He's not going to be railing out and and trying to correct people and trying to get the story right and calling the news stations and all that stuff. <laughs> He's not going to call TMZ to try to get it right. He's not going to get a, the lawyers to sue the people. But he's just going to sit there and let them do it. But another prophecy tells us about his person. That first of all, in, in Isaiah 7 and 14, he tells us that a virgin shall conceive and bring forth the child and you will call his name Emmanuel. That being interpreted God with us. Then a couple of chapters later in 9 and 6, he says that unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. See, we want him to be the Prince of War. This is the Savior. We want the Savior to be the Prince of War. We want the Savior to be the Prince of Revenge. We want him to be the prince of anger. He did not come to display the anger of God. His sole purpose of manifestation was to show mercy, to give peace. See, sometimes we want to live in the wrong dispensation because we want people to pay for the wrongs that they've done. We are really trying to usher them into, day, into the day of the Lord. Instead of giving place to wrath and allowing the wrongdoers, yes, they're wrongdoers, but God wants us to allow them to live in the day of Christ. Let's not push them into the day of the Lord because the time is not at hand yet. Yeah, this is hard stuff. So he's the prince of peace. He's not the prince of strife. The only vein in which he came with strife is that he would come with a sword dividing house between mother and father. But that really had to deal with those that would receive him as the Messiah and receive his sacrifice as the propitiation for their sins. That's, that was the dividing point that he came with the sword. That if you have a household and you got some that don't believe in Christ and you got some that do believe in Christ, that house is going to be divided because you're going to your lives are going to be governed different. You're, you're living now in a state of worship and and praise for your sins being remitted. And, and they just want to they just want to reject the sacrifice of Christ and just live in sin. So that's where he said, I came with a sword to divide up house between daughter and, and mother and father and son. So then the King James Version of, of Romans 12, he says, give place to wrath. This means to defer the just reward or the punishment 
to the ones in authority to do so. Paul is superseding magistrates by, ref by referencing the Old Testament scripture and telling them that God will pay vengeance. So sometimes we, we can't always rely on the legal system. All of us in here probably have, have had some experience with the legal system. It ain't right. It ain't right. We, we, we got people that are rapists that are walking the streets. They haven't shown any, any kind of bit of change of heart. They got one guy who's raped over 40 women about to get out, I, I think, here in a couple of weeks. Over 40 women that we know of that he never denied. He racked up 40 in between prison sentences. That's what he racked up while he was actually out of prison. In fact, one time he got released and went straight to the bus station and, and raped a woman. Right after getting let out. So, so we know that our legal system fails us miserably. We can't always go out and, and it, it, it would be hell on earth if we start going after everybody that, <laughs> that did wrong. Yeah. It would literally be hell on earth. Because we got to realize that in this life, there's sin. We live in a sinful world. He came not to take us out of the world, but he came that, that we might have life while we're here. Life more abundantly and then usher us into glory. And in the process that we would turn around and affect as many people as we can with the gospel message. Those people that they brought to Jesus, the woman in adultery, she was an adulteress. She knew what she was doing. They wanted to stone her to death and they wanted Jesus to sign off on it. Jesus said, okay, I'll sign off on it. In fact, I'll let the first person without sin throw the first stone. Have at it. Now they're silent. Because <laughs> there's no answer. Because all have sinned. And now if we really believe that sin is sin, all sin will be punished in the end. If it's not repented of, the destination of the person who perpetrates sin, any kind, is the lake of fire. We're in agreement with that, right? So in God's eye, our sin is no greater than their sin. Their sin is no greater than our sin. Now in our minds, we have sins on different levels. Because the murderer is surely not, you know, his, his sin is much worse than my, you know, my drunkenness. He took a life. I just got drunk. But in God's eyes, it's all the same. How he's going to work that out, I don't know. I just know that in, in our little mindset, we compartmentalize and we have levels of things. And we want God to follow that order. And when we pray to him and we take things to him, we want him to respect our order of things when he's telling us it's just one order. It's sin or righteousness. <laughs> that we will never understand. So this principle of giving place to wrath. This principle is especially difficult to accept with, with regard to those who have abused us and the law has failed us. We must rely upon the word of God when it promises 
that God will recompense. The Bible tells us that all the promises of God in him are yea and amen. So everything that's covered, this is another reason why we really have to get back to just the pure word of God. Because in it contains a lot of the answers that we ask that we don't think he's answering, but it's in his word. But because we've been told the wrong thing and it's been distorted and it's been twisted and turned into opinion and and all kind of things, generational this and that, we lose the real genuine message of what's written in the Bible. So if his promises are yea and amen, that means I got to go and study. Well, what does the Lord say about this in the word? What does it say about people that do others wrong? And I'm not saying that we just let wrong run amok. We, we have we speak against sin and the sinful nature and the sinful nature of man. We speak against that. We preach again. We, we counter it with the gospel message and we counter it with things that are found in the Bible that are able to convert the soul. But the promises that are found there, I thought about the scripture that says, one thing have I desired of the Lord and that will I seek after. That I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his holy temple. Now the psalmist wrote that because he had some questions. I want to go to the temple of God. And I have some questions that I want to ask the man that is standing in the place between me and God. The priest. I want to ask the priest in the Lord's house some questions. I expect that priest in turn to have some answers for me. See, but this is not the nature in which our churches are set up. Because the preacher just gives you whatever message he thinks is right. Right? So we got a lot of people now frustrated because they have questions that are not being answered. Week in, week out, year in, year out. I don't know what's going on. God told me to come and ask. I'm inquiring. Don't know. Right. That can become frustrating. So the psalmist says that there's two things that's important when we gather. Number one. I've got to behold the beauty of the Lord. Second, I got to inquire in his temple. But that that inquiry suggests that there's some answers to my inquiry. So he promises some, us some things. And in this text or in this lesson, he promises that whoever's done you wrong. God sees them and God's going to deal with them in his time, not our time, because, you know, we, we, Lord, it's been four years and, you know, uh, I'm kind of, that's, that's a lot of, and that's the question that many psalmists ask. How long give place to wrath? This phrase also admonishes us to appeal to mercy and grace give place or give room give time to wrath not your wrath give time to God's wrath sometimes we don't we don't know who God's working on in the situation sometimes we see later down the line man if if I would have went and acted on my, my impulse and my anger I could have messed up a whole situation some of us Parents, you know, we have this thing where we're protective. If anybody ever touched my kid, I'll kill them. 
then you got a Benny Akia because you now in jail. <laughs> Some people have taken that route and didn't think about it till afterward. Now the kid is worse off than they would have been if you would have just been there to administer mercy and grace to them in their situation and gone through it as a family unit. Did they really do some wrong? Oh, man. Some things that we would think is worthy of death. Yeah, Peter talked about it earlier. The God of the Old Testament. Man, just kill them. That was God's judgment. They do this, kill them. In fact, if a parent talked Curse their parent. If a kid cursed their parent, kill the kid. Right? That was the law. Now we know we, we couldn't do that. Our kids said, uh, you make me sick or something like that. Kill them. We wouldn't have no kids. Our society would be childless. Right? All parents, how many have kids that have spoken disrespectfully to them? Just said some crazy stuff. All right, the Old Testament thing was kill him? Well, this is God? So, but now is not the day of that kind of governing in, in his church. So give place to wrath. Nahum 1 and 2 says, God is jealous over those he loves. Remember the first messianic prophecy. We talked about 9 and 6 where he says he's a prince of peace and not the prince of wrath and strife and anger and all that stuff but the first one says that Emmanuel means God with us now that really doesn't just mean location wise because certainly when he came in the flesh he was with us he tabernacled with us but it also means his attitude toward us that he is with us he's for us and then that brings my mind to Romans where he says if God be for us who can be against us? So he says here in Nahum 1 and 2, God is jealous over those he loves. That is why he takes vengeance on those who hurt them. This is promised. If you're God's, then he's jealous over you. And if he's jealous over you, every single person that has ever hurt you will be avenged. Now that gives me peace. But because we don't really think about things from this side we sit in despair and the silence that we have is not a reverence for God but it's turned into a silence that is representative of despair because now we believe God don't see me God don't hear me God is, is silent he's not answering my prayer I'm, I'm in trouble He's not coming to my aid. I've been here X amount of days, X amount of years, X amount of decades. And I have no idea if I can get out of this thing. But if we believe the Bible, we got to believe that he's going to take vengeance on those who hurt us. Then he says he furiously destroys their enemies. Then pick this up. Verse number three. He is slow in getting anger. God is slow to anger. But when he's aroused, his power is incredible. And he does not easily forgive. So this verse actually makes me feel sorry for those that have done me wrong. Because right now, he's in a place where he's not quick to anger. 
But like the Old Testament says, God, his spirit will not always strive a man. He's going to reach a point. He reached it in Genesis. Paul talks about it in, in Romans chapter one, where he reached a, a, a position to where he just gave the people up to a reprobate mind. But he reaches that point. But when he's aroused, you can't put him out. Once that fire arises up in God and he begins to deal with your enemies, you can't help them. Nobody can help them. The preacher can't help them because they've gone too far, as somebody said, and stayed too long. So they, the medication, the prescription now for us is to just feed them when they're hungry, give them water when they're thirsty. What are you doing then? You're wearing out their conscience. Whether you realize it or not, Paul said it's true. Now the question is, do we believe that? Well, some say, well, I don't think they have a conscience. If they don't, they've already reached the point to where God's gave up on them. There's nothing you could do for them anyway. Because they've been placed in hell before hell even comes now. A person that is incapable of changing and responding to God's grace is in hell. They may not look like they're in hell. They look like they're enjoying life. They're in hell. The person that can't be touched by God's presence is in hell. They're beyond hell because the Bible says that even if I make my bed in hell, I can't escape his presence. But if you if you are not in his presence at all, you you're beyond hell. I don't even know what that place is called. Hmm. So my answer is to let go and let God. I want to read. I'll probably just read one of these Psalms. Psalms 28. And then the other one you could read is Psalms 94. But in Psalms 28, this is the Living Bible Translation. He says, I plead with you to help me, Lord, for you are my rock of safety. If you refuse to answer me, I might as well give up and die. Lord, if I lift my hands to heaven and implore your help, oh, listen to my cry. Don't punish me with all the wicked ones who speak so sweetly to their neighbors while planning to murder them. See, some you got some double talkers. They're nice to you in person, but behind your back, they're your enemy. Give them the punishment they so richly deserve. Measure it out to them in proportion to their wickedness. Pay them back for all their evil deeds. They care nothing for God or what he has done or what he has made. Therefore, God will dismantle them like old buildings, never to be rebuilt again. See, once he gets to your enemies, there's no building them back. Once his wrath starts to be poured out, you can't rebuild that person. They can sing Tone's song all they want. Make me over. Ain't, there's no making over. Once you reach this point, this would do us good not to treat others wrong. Because then we got to place ourselves on the end of this also. That if we do people wrong, God's going to avenge them also. Oh, praise the Lord, for he has listened to my pleadings. 
He is my strength, my shield from every danger. I trusted in him and he helped me. Joy rises in my heart until I burst out in songs of praise to him. The Lord protects his people and gives victory to his anointed king. Defend your people, Lord. Defend and bless your chosen ones. Lead them like a shepherd and carry them forever in your arms. So this is how we appeal to God. Lord, you're going to take care of the wrong. And in the meantime, I'm going to realize all the places where you've delivered me already. I'm going to sing songs of, of praise and I'm going to move on with my life. And I'll let you handle all the dirty work, because if my mind really gets to just pondering on things that everybody's doing to me or, or my family or my loved ones and all this stuff, I will start to really develop hate in my heart. I will become evil in my thinking and you won't get any of the praise out of my life. It'll become a cancer. Lamentations 3. Verse 25 says, the Lord is good to those who wait hopefully and expectantly on him, to those who seek him or inquire of and for him and require him by right of necessity and on the authority of God's word. It is good that one should hope in, we like that, right? Hope in God and wait. We like to wait, right? Hoping and waiting. But the Bible says, wait quietly. While you're waiting, shut up. You can't be claiming to wait while you're fussing and fighting and complaining, bickering, moaning. It's good that one should hope in and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. That's what Jesus did. He, he sat there and he took it. Because he knew his future glory. And in knowing that, he just sat there and patiently waited for it. There was no way for him to sit in honor without him going through what he went through. So why sit there and prolong it by giving your side of the story? Sit there, shut up, let the person do the wrong so we can get to the glory. Now that we don't believe. He sat there as he said, all right, come on. I, I want to rush this death on. I want, I just, I want to die because my glory is coming. So I, I want to get through, to the place to where God has answered all of my prayers. But in order for him to do that, I really got to go through things that I've requested in my prayers. So the power of silence. When Jesus was silent, there was something that was shifting in the atmosphere. He was being demanded an answer from many, but he said nothing. Listen to all of the people that, that were like waiting for answers. Caiaphas, waiting for Jesus to answer. Pilate, waiting for Jesus. They demanded that he answer. The governor, listening for an answer. The people, listening for an answer. Satan was also sitting there, listening for an answer. The angels... Saying, Lord, just give us the, 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 the charge. We'll come get you. Waiting for an answer. The saints right now are waiting for an answer. But in his silence, he was saving the world without saying a word. He saved the world in silence. 
That's pretty deep. Why? Because he had already said what he was going to say. Everything that Jesus quoted was already written. He had already spoken it. There was no need for him to say anything new. Remember that it wasn't long after Saul consented to the death of Stephen that the Holy Ghost arrested him. Saul sat there and he held the coats of those men that stoned Stephen to death. They accused Stephen of a lot of things. Guess what Stephen did? Never said a word. The words that he did say, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When Jesus is on the cross, he said, Lord, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now, that was the prayer of Jesus. That was the prayer of Stephen. Was the prayer answered? For some of them, yes. Some of the people that crucified Jesus, the centurion soldier, I have a good feeling he was there on the day of Pentecost. Because after Jesus gave up the ghost, the centurion said, surely this was the son of God. So while they were waiting for an answer from Jesus, Jesus sat in silence waiting for an answer from them. And the centurion answered the question, now I believe. The one that held the coats of, of those that stoned Stephen, less than a chapter later, was saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. Lord, forgive them. Lay not this sin to their charge. Some people are being saved through our silence. We want to exact vengeance. We want them to pay. But your silence may be saving a soul. So just because Jesus was silent didn't mean that he was inactive. Just because we are silent doesn't mean that things are not happening. And when we think God is silent, just take comfort in knowing that the Bible says his ear is open. Even when his mouth is closed. Even God takes his own advice for the Bible tells us be swift to what? Hear and slow to speak. God is swift to hear and he's slow to speak. So those times when we think he's silent, he's silent because he's listening. The question is, what is going into his ear? Because he's recording everything we say. Is he hearing Gosh, Lord, it's sure taking a long time to deliver me. Is he hearing, I, I, I really don't believe, you know, I don't, maybe I'm not his. I, don't, I really don't believe, maybe he's just not that interested in what I'm going through. Does he hear, man, maybe I deserve this. You know, I, I, I'm not good enough anyway to answer me. Who am I but a sinner? What is God hearing? when he's silent, even in your prayers. Now, I caution you, don't just concentrate on what actually leaves your lips <laughs> because his ear is so keen that he hears the heart. Doesn't have to make it to the lips. That's why the psalmist said, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. So this should give us greater appreciation in knowing that he hears me when he's not speaking. 
Most of what he said is already written in the Bible for us. It, shame on us for not searching the scriptures. For in them we think we have eternal life, but they are they that testify of him, but we won't go to him. So the Bible says his ears are open and his eyes are seeing and we say it all the time. We, we, we put it on us, you know, that maybe you should just be quiet. The Lord gave you two eyes to see and two ears to hear and only one mouth. So maybe you should just shut up. But we see here, God sometimes follows the exact same pattern. He doesn't say anything, but he's listening and he's looking, he's observing. Is it frustrating sometimes? Wouldn't we like for God to speak to us like he did Moses? Audibly just tell me because I don't know how to read this spirit thing. Right? It's difficult. I think I should go that way. Yeah, I feel pretty good about going that way. I think I should. Oh, Lord, I done made a mistake. Lord, it's easy for you. I mean, you're, your voice is like thunder. You can speak to me and I, I'll know for sure. I won't have a doubt in my mind. There was a group that asked God to speak to him in the Old Testament. And as soon as he spoke the first words, their response was, don't ever speak to me again. Just talk to Moses. <laughs> right? Maybe we need to grasp that and realize that you can't handle God's voice. Maybe we should sit comfortable with the fact that he got ears and he has eyes. And that he's promised us that he's going to take care of every enemy. Not in your time, not in their time, but in his time. So I say with that, that we should. Psalms 34 says, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his eyes are his ears are open unto their cry. First Peter three and 12 for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So I would say with this, that we should release all the anger, all of the frustration, all of the hopelessness that has been caused because you want to tell your side of the story. This happens in, in families, uh, marriages, uh, mother-daughter, father-son, father-daughter, whatever the relationship. I refuse to sit back and be done wrong. I don't deserve this. I don't have to take it. Some stuff God says you don't have to take. There's some stuff you don't have to take. The situation that, that gripped my heart when I heard this message I was ready to scream. God says, shut up. And I haven't said a word since. And I have peace. And I do good to those. And I do it genuinely. Does it hurt? Absolutely. You can embrace all of your human feelings while you go through it. God didn't say that you couldn't cry. Man says you shouldn't cry. Never let the enemy see you cry. God says, shed your tears. I see them. Cry out to me. Pray to me. I'm listening. I'm seeing. Every prayer that you pray is, is being stored. 
It's not even written in a book. They're actually still there in his presence. Every prayer that we ever prayed. Stored up in vials. That's amazing. There's got to be some awful big vials in heaven. So my plea is release it. Yes, it's wrong. But God has got it into control. That doesn't mean that you, you got to live with that individual. I'm not talking about spouses. You know, your spouse is going to live together, hopefully. It's a different lesson. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. You don't have to be like your best buddy, buddy. Tea and crumpets. <laughs> Peanut says you don't have to have tea and crumpets with them. But there's a mandate in God's word that we are to live as much as possible, peaceable with all men. To the, and where peace can't be, don't break out in war and start fighting and fist fighting and tearing up the house. Just back away. Leave. For abusive relationships that are physically and, and severely emotional abusive, leave. You, you can't obtain peace in that setting. Leave so you can get some peace. Because you're not going to have peace if you go about it your own way. I'm done.